40 years and one month ago today, TV was changed when the first episode of Late Night with David Letterman aired. My guest this week was not only there, but invented two parts of the show that stayed to the end. After his two years, he left Late Night to write for Robert Klein for three years and the new Mickey Mouse Club for three. Now he's an expert on comedy of the past. It's a pleasure to welcome Mr. Steve Weiner. Thank you, Ian. Happy to be here. Thank you. Okay, so I always ask, where were they born, and what were their first comedy influences? Uh, well, I'm not going to tell you the year. You could look that up, but I, but it was here in New York. In fact, in the in the apartment that I basically the apartment that I'm, I still live in. I, I actually bought my father's place from him at, when I got out of it was sometime after I got out of college. So I'm a New Yorker, New York East Upper East Side, Yorkville boy. Uh, my first experiences with comedy, I think. A lot of kids who grew up at the time I did in the early 60s had similar experiences, which that children's programming at that time uh, is not was not essentially things made directly for them. But when I would get home from school, I'd turn on the TV and I would see Laurel and Hardy, Howard Gang, Abbott and Costello, The Three Stooges, Warner Brothers cartoons. This would be a daily watching for me. So I was exposed to the, some of the classics just because they were there. And then it was came from all over the place because my, my father was a playwright. He was actually didn't write comedy, he wrote drama, but he loved comedy. And he would he's the one who took me to my first Marx Brothers double feature. And he saw that the bank dick WC Fields was going to be on television. He said to me, I think you're going to like this. Uh, he would let me stay up to watch Jack Benny with him. We watched the Dick Van Dyke show together. And so that's that's childhood. And as I got older, I just became interested in all kinds of comedy that what was contemporary, but also the classic comedy of the past, silent comedy. I was interested in literary humor like Thurber and Benchley. I became interested in comic strips, uh, Pogo and Peanuts and many others. Uh, it just, it, I was, I sort of was a comedy junkie. Did you go to college? I did go to college. Uh, I, I hope that is evident. Uh, I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, that's where I went, and uh, that's where I went. I majored in, in uh, what used to be called speech, but was actually then changed the communication arts, which was radio, TV, film. Okay. And where did you meet your partner? In high school, actually. We both were at Horace Mann High School in New York. Uh, and he was a year or so behind me. I think he, his name is Carl Tiedemann, by the way. And I think he came up to me in a conversation that I was having with another friend, probably about the Marx Brothers or somebody like that, and joined the conversation. And we became friends and we talked endlessly about comedy. And we went when we both sort of wanted to be in it. And I think we just started writing pretty soon. I mean, I, we actually wrote our first spec script. He was a year or so behind me at ours. So I was in college. I started in college when we were still in high school. We wrote our first spec script by mail. Um, and so that was, that's how we started. Uh, and then there was one year he did come to, he actually spent most of his time at NYU, but this first year he spent at UW Madison with me. And we, we had a, a radio comedy show together on the, the college station. Uh, and uh, it was a kind of Bob and Ray-ish sort of show, well, but it was all comedy. Uh, and that material, I'm sort of jumping the gun on your probably might be your next question. That material is the first material we used to sort of get into the business. We got, uh, when we got, when I got out of college, um, the National Lampoon's radio hour was on and we pitched that material. Uh, some of our material from our radio show, we put together what we thought was our best and we, we got that first Michael O'Donoghue, but we never heard from him. And then we got it to Doug Kenny and Doug Kenny read it and he liked it and he wanted us to work with him, but the radio show got canceled. 
So he said, well, hang around, we'll get you into the magazine. And so Doug Kenny was our, really our first mentor when we started writing. Um, very wonderful guy. Really, really great team tutor and friend. This was the point where he would skip off to, to Hawaii to work on his book? Or was he there most it's of the wrong. time? No, no, this, was, this was early when he was still at the magazine. He, he went, everything that happened that people know about happened after that. At the time he was still, he was start, starting to separate himself from the magazine. So he was still there, but he was no longer was running the whole thing. But we were working with him in, at the office and, and elsewhere, trying coming up with material. Eventually we wound up publishing two pieces there. We actually sold three and we worked on another one besides that, 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 that uh, with Doug specifically, and that Doug ultimately wound up saying that Doug didn't work. And, but he paid this out of his own pocket because that was the kind of guy he was. Uh, but all of everything else, long, this long before Animal House, before, right around the time that the uh, high school yearbook parody came out, which was largely Doug's. So that would be that period. And eventually he left for California and then we sort of lost touch with him and we, we didn't really stick around with the magazine after that. I knew Sean Kelly. We worked a little bit with Sean after Doug left. Uh, I think that Sean actually wound up publishing being the direct responsible for getting the pieces we had in the magazine. And I liked him. I liked him. We didn't have, we didn't have the same relationship we have with Doug. To Doug, it was, you know, it was, he sort of took us under his wing. We were great. It was a great, more personal relationship with uh, Sean. It was more, a little more business, but, but it was fine. It was fine working with Sean. And do you remember the thing, first thing you sold? Yeah. Uh, it, it was a little spin of a joke that I had had since probably since grade school. I remember you used to remember you remember silly putty. They say you know are, are you right. old enough to they still make it? And I remember making a joke either in grade school or high school to say that silly putty was what was left over on the table after the Frankenstein monster was built. Um, and I so we pitched a, a, com, a comic strip that was sort of in the Harvey Kurtzman field, which was silly putty comics, which is how how it got invented. And it's very much written in, a, in, in as almost an ode to Harvey Kurtzman. Uh, at the end of it, the, the, uh, the Silly Putty breaks free off part of the comic panel. Because as you may remember, they always have Silly Putty, you can pick up your favorite comic strip heroes. We wanted it to actually go for another, across the magazine for another two pages, but they didn't, they didn't go for that. Um, and then the next one we wrote was a little more ambitious, which was a, uh, again, this is something that was ancient history, I think, when we in grade school, there was always a school newspaper. The kids always would put on newspaper. It'd be on blue mimeograph paper, and and it would be, you know, just child children writing. And we we wrote uh, a, a parody of one of those kind of newsletters, uh, and that got published too. And then the third piece. This was a try a minor tragedy for us. I mean, I think it was the best piece we wrote by far. Um, we did the uh, the museum Museum of Modern Art Fun and Activities books. They published those kind of game books that you would find in the, in the markets and in the newsstands. So, and there were all the jokes were tied to modern class, modern art. So we had the George Surratt connect the dots with like 15,000 dots to connect uh, the George Brock cut and paste, which is just slivers that no matter how you stick it together, it doesn't quite connect. Uh, and then the back page, which really didn't fit with the fun and activities book, but you remember the, or did you ever see those old things where you'd see these lists of, Thing of practical jokes and things that kids could buy. Yeah, uh, back comic books. Right. So we did what we did. We did the back cover of that was going to be uh, all tied into modern art jokes. For example, we had the Klaus Oldenburg 12 foot tall plastic bucket. Uh, mm -hmm. We had uh, 
the, the gag soap that would make your, your face look like the fourth Demoiselle d'Avignon from Picasso. It was, it was very specific kind of jokes. And we loved that piece. And I remember Sean saying, we had just finished it, and John, Sean saying, we're on deadline, can we run it to the office right this minute? And I said, yeah, I said, we, we don't have a copy of this, you know, we just, because in those days, you know, you type from typewriter, and if you didn't use uh, copying paper, you didn't have it, unless you ran into a copy shop. And he said, yeah, we only have one copy. He said, don't worry about it, it's going right into the magazine. So we, we ran down, I ran down, with my only copy, turned into Sean, waited for, for the magazine to come out, it wasn't there. And I called Sean, and I said, what happened? He said, well, we, we got tight for space, we had to bump it, but we'll put it in, a, in another issue. And he, he said... I said, he said, do you have a copy? And I said, no, we brought you our only copy. And he said, oh, I, I said, do you think you know where it might be? And I said, no, I don't think I do. So that is lost to history. So I can now maintain it was a great piece because nobody can prove me right or wrong. It just gone. I've seen the other two. I've read the other two. So Thank you. Well, I say thank you. You didn't say whether you liked them. I'm, no, no, they, I'm were fun. they were funny. Okay. When the silly putty took over the world and was, just making copies of a bunch of things. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 was, it, it was an interesting place to work. I mean, we I never got we didn't get to know a lot of the people who worked there. It was very it was fairly fairly. There were little. I mean, people didn't even show up at the office basically at that point in time. We would arrive at two o'clock, waiting for a meeting with Doug, who might show up at three. And you get inside, and there was basically nobody there except PJ O'Rourke, who was in a jacket and tie and typing and basically getting the magazine out. Uh, so you, we didn't get to meet a lot of the people who worked there, but it was still an interesting experience to have been there. Henry was there every day, right? Excuse me? Henry was there every day. I never met him. I, I don't, I, I, I don't, I think I was, he was pointed out to me once in his office, but I don't remember ever actually being introduced to him. We, we weren't really introduced to a lot of people. I remember Doug would sweep us into his office and then sort of sweep us out again. I do remember, make of this what you will, but I have a vivid memory. I remember him pointing Gay and Wilson out to me which once, which was very exciting because I loved his stuff. Uh, but he, I remember him, we were walking along and Tony Henry was in the corner and Doug said to himself, uh, oh, that's Tony Henry. And he said to himself, do you want to meet Tony Henry? No, you don't want to meet Tony Henry. And he basically turned us away. I don't know what that means, but I, mean, but I remember it. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, it. It was a very odd kind of place to, to be a part of. And we were really deeply involved in we were really freelancers who just had a, a little time there. But, you know, if it hadn't been for Doug, I mean, I think he did a lot to help us really get get on our feet and feel like we were real writers. So what did you do after that? Was that King of Z's the next project? Yeah, King of the Z's came along around that time, um, give or take. And what was happening was we'd written a number of spec scripts. And as everybody does, I think everybody has a drawer full of spec scripts who tries to work in comedy. Most of them don't. I think most of them don't do anything for anybody. I don't really remember meeting a lot of people who said I got hired because of my spec script. I'm sure there are some, but I, I never. We got close a couple of times that never really did anything. So my partner had just graduated. Carl had just graduated from from NYU, and but he had connections there. So and I had had an idea for the script. The story that I had that was originally my premise. It's if for people who don't know King of the Disease, which I suspect is most people at this point. It was a documentary about the world's cheapest movie studio of the 40s and 50s. <clears throat> what we would do is, and there weren't a lot of what we now call mockumentaries, a phrase I can't, a word I can't stand, but there weren't a lot of those at the time. There had been a few. But in, in what we would do to make this work is we, we would do interviews, supposedly the people who worked there in color contemporary footage. Then we would make our old black and white film clips. 
And that, and the idea for it was because I loved old movies and I just, it was sort of going, I don't know if I specifically thought this, but it was almost, you know, Peter Shickley's PDQ box. I've heard of him. Yeah, Peter Shickley had, had it was a, a, a musician who created this, the world's, the last and least of box, many children, who, who was the worst composer of his time. And he created the music and he would have concerts where he did music. So in a way, King of the Seas was sort of to what, going to be to movies what Petey Kubak was to classical music. So we, we, so what happened was Carl re-enrolled re for a summer course at NYU so we would have access to the equipment. And we made the movie. Now, we, some of, I'm sure many of your listeners know Larry Bud Melman Calvert, whose real name is Calvert DeForest. Calvert had come to a, an actually auditioned for an earlier short film that, that was mostly Carl's. I worked on the script, but I was sort of Carl's baby. And when we came up, when I came up with this idea for this studio and trying to think of what kind of actors you would have at the world's cheapest worst studio, Calvert's name just spoke to me. And so we, I wrote this, the first draft of the script and then Carl came in and rewrote it with me. And uh, we made the film and Calvert had a prominent role in it. It wasn't all Calvert, but it was, he was certainly there. And we submitted it to, among other places, a, a festival called Telluride, which at that time was virtually unknown. I think it was either, I think maybe the second year, third year, that they, I, I don't know exactly. But they really weren't widely known the way they are now. But they picked us for the, for the festival. And I think probably a career mistake, we didn't go because we thought how much, you know, they, they, had, they couldn't pay our way. And the question was, who would pay that much attention to a short film in a, in, a, in a major film festival? Well, apparently it went over very big. And we got a, a, an agent from that who was a, a film distributor agent who, who got us on a couple of in a couple of theaters, but also got us on Showtime. And we King of the Seas became an interstitial on Showtime for, for two years. They picked us up for a second year. Um, I never saw it on the air because in those days, Showtime was only from 86th Street and above in New York City. I lived on 84th Street, so I couldn't even get Showtime. So people would tell me, oh, we saw your show film. And I said, I never saw it on, te <laughs> never saw it on television. Um, but at that point, you know, it, it sort of was getting around. It was getting known. We did take, I remember going to California at one point. We made several trips to L.A. To, for extended time to try to get something going. Nothing, nothing really happened. Um, but I remember taking a meeting with... Um, uh, his name is, you might know better, the member's name better than John Davison, D-A-V-I-S-O-N, who was involved with the, I think the airplane guys and some of the others. I may not have his name right, I'm I apologize if I don't. But Jim, Jim Abrams? Jim, no, it wasn't Jim Abrams. It was a producer, not one of the writers. Yeah, I, I, somebody will remember, I'm sure, who hears this and will write and tell me how completely wrong I was. Um, but I remember having a meeting with him and he, he loved the film, but didn't have anything for us. So it was that kind of thing. Things were kind of inching along, but we weren't actually getting any work out of this thing. Um, and so there it was for two years. We were, it was sort of sitting there. Now, uh, David Letterman had his morning show and which I, I was a huge fan of his morning show. Uh, then, then the morning show was canceled and we heard after a time, you know, they announced that the late night, he was going to have a late night show. Um, by what I can only call as a, for my life, the best coincidence of my life, a um, man named Stu Smiley, who, was, who became a sort of big, eventually became a big, a big force in, in, in comedy as a, as a 
sort of producer and, and uh, working with a number of different places. But at the time, he was working in the Rollins and Joffe office. Rollins and Joffe were the great comedy managers. Uh, they managed every great, pretty much every great comedian, starting with Nichols and May and Woody Allen, going through Dave and David Letterman, Billy Crystal, Mark Moe, you name all the people. That was Rollins and Joffe. Stu was working there, and he saw it on Showtime. And he tracked us down, and he called me by but as I said, the great coincidence of my life, really, about two months before the Letterman show was due to start. He didn't think of me. He wasn't thinking of us for Letterman, per se. He called me up. I was the one that he found first. And he said he loved the film. And uh, we'd, I'd love to do something with you guys because I think you're interested. And I just reached in, into my head and said, well, you know, I know the... Because he, he introduced him saying, well, I, you know, I work with... Ross and Joffe with David Letterman's, Letterman's manager. I said, well, you know, I'm a big fan of David Letterman. Um, and uh, I would love to have them take, maybe they would take a look at our picture. I know that show, my, I don't know if the show's staffing up at this point, I said, and he said, well, let me, let me take the film over and let me see. And we got a call back and we went in for a met, uh, meeting with David and Meryl Marco. And I have to say, because I wanted that job so badly, I gave what was, without question, the worst job interview in the history of job <laughs> interviews. And I know this because some time later, after you'd all been always been already been working there for a while, Merrill told me that was you were terrible in the job interview because you were so desperate. Uh, now, to be fair, she would gave it in the context of saying, "Oh, we wound up really liking you," but at that time we weren't so sure. Fortunately, Carl was more relaxed than I was and gave a better interview. And then ultimately they gave us the chance. They gave us that shot. And um, I know you've heard this from before from Andy Breckman. I'm sure and you would hear from other people. Merrill is, was the most, Merrill and David were the most important people in our career and in my life, probably they changed my life. They took a big risk. You know, it was a big show for them. This was a make or break show and they hired first time TV writers. That's a, that's a, you know, you roll a big, big dice when you do that. And I've always been grateful to them for doing that, for giving us that opportunity. During that first meeting before we had the job, uh, I remember Meryl saying some, something like, we're looking for a little guy like that guy in your movie for this show. And I said, well, that's the guy you're looking for. <laughs> you know, I mean, the, there are two of them. So, so Calvert sort of came along with us to the show. Uh, and if, for those who watch the show, uh, Merrill's idea, the original opening, which was the uh, the first episode, which was the introduction to Frank, the original Frankenstein movie, uh, but just with the words, uh, David, with the Letterman show and replaced into that. And uh, the first person anybody saw in the first Letterman show was Calvert DeForest, who would eventually be called Larry Bud Melman. That was, that was Merrill's name for him. Yeah, I remember when that, when they started airing the reruns on E!, much to, much to Dave's chagrin, I had no idea that, that was the original opening to um, Frankenstein. But right. when, when I saw an interview with Hal Gurney, well, it was interesting because this is this is where you learn. I learned what big chances creatively that Merrill was willing to take. Because I remember saying, "Well, why don't we write a parody version of that so that it'd be fun? You'll get some of the same feel, but a lot of you'll have more jokes in it per se." And I remember writing it with Carl, and she said. I like this, but I just think the other thing is just so interesting. It was so interesting to do it like this. So it, it may have baffled a lot of people, but I think that may have been true of the show in general for a while. Too, people caught on to what 
the show was. Uh, but Meryl was always ready to take those kind of chances. What things were created in pre-production? I don't know that. I don't know that really much. I think we were sort of finding our way. Pre-production. I I I remember we did the test shows. There were there were about four or five test shows with, with varying lengths, and we were always a part of the early work on the show because they wanted us on to do, so they could show clips, some of the black and white clips from our movie from King of Disease. So we came on as experts, historical film experts who had discovered the studio. And we did a, we did a test show like that. We are also in a third or fourth episode of the first week of the show. It was the whichever show that um, SCTV guys uh, were on. Um, the names went out of my head. But you, Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas. They, they, right, right. Rick Moranis and Dave Thomas. And then we were on the same show. And that was the first week. So we, but we'd already tested on done one of the test shows. So everything was very much in flux. We were there were certain things that came from the morning show that Meryl brought over, which was the the viewer mail segment, uh, stupid pet tricks, those kind of things. So those were already in the mix. Uh, but they were trying things. Some things, you know, we all tried things. Some things worked. Some things didn't. And bit by bit, the show form found its form as as we went along. So Eddie Breckman told me that it took him a while to get his first thing on the air. Besides the King of the Seas and you actually appearing on the show, how quick was it for you to get your first joke or your first bit? We got it. I have to say, it was one of those benefits of being comedy, you know, buffs in a way, which is that we have so many templates in our head that we were able to, you know, when they were trying to find things to do, we've got a lot of stuff the first few weeks because we had so many different ways of going where we could try stuff. Now we, we, some of those things worked and ultimately some of those didn't become a major part of the show. But we did, for example, I love the Robert Benchley shorts, you know, the, the great New Yorker cartoonist who also made movie shorts where he would do presentations and lectures that were funny. And I, and I thought we thought that that would work for, for, for uh, Dave. So we tried it. We did a couple of those and then, you know, they went over pretty well. I don't think Dave was enjoyed doing them as much as the audience might have done. But again, we tried that. We got stuff, and I think we got it through our mail pretty quickly. Uh, I think we got, a, you know, we, prop jokes were always there, and I, I never got those. I can't remember a lot, but I do remember we, we got a lot in because Andy and then Tom and Max, some of the others were finding their way. When, once they got in, they were all all in. I mean, they were, became huge parts of the show. Um, uh, we got them fairly quickly. Does the name Kirk Hancock ring a bell? Not at all. Okay, he is the person who wrote into viewer mail. Yes. Oh, okay. Who said, yes, go ahead. Dave, is that a real window behind you? <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, you, this, is the, this is the thing about comedy in general, is that you just never know. I, that was my gag. That one was one of mine. And I remember writing it, and I thought it was kind of a soft gag. You know, so for the, you know, people who don't know the gag, then becomes, is the glass real? And Dave threw a pencil in the glass, the year the window break. I thought it was kind of a soft one more times the next night. And then for 30 years or so after throwing glass through the window, um, who knows? You, you just never know what's going to be the thing that's going to catch on. Uh, it's a funny thing to take credit for, but for what it's worth, that's my credit. And by the way, May 6th would be the 40th anniversary of that. Well, let's go through town and break some windows. I think it's only fair. If you want to make a, make, you get a cake made out of a blue that looks like a blue card. There you go. 
Yeah, with with glass with 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 that what is that what's that kind of frosting that or that kind of thing they do? Oh, like fondant. Yeah, let's make it with that. We'll do that, and we'll break some windows for days. <laughs> so yes, that that is that. There you go. Yeah, what was it like working with Jim Downey? Jim and I, let's let's let's. Well, we have to go a little history when we get to Jim Downey because we've been there at that point for three quarters of a year, and Merrill had wanted to move on for some time. It became a bit of a, tr- a tricky situation picking the next head writer. Uh, originally, I think Merrill wanted Andy for the, to do it, and I think that the feeling in the office was that that picking up some, taking somebody from within the group, and it was an unpleasant experience, the whole thing. And I think it should have been, and we should all have handled that better with Andy. I think that it was, we didn't treat Andy particularly well at that moment, and we didn't give him the support that he should have had. Um, and then eventually, Jim Downey came, was brought in by, I think, by Tom and Max. And the bottom line was, we just didn't connect. Carl and I just never really found a connection with him. So it was not the pleasantest experience of our life. And we'd had a wonderful time on the show up until that point. Loved working with Meryl, loved working with, you know, with, to the extent that one worked with David, we loved working with David. Uh, always felt that we were supported and, and had, had the, the backing of the show and the backing of Meryl. And we just didn't have that with Jimmy. So beyond that, there's not that much I really want to say about Jim. He's obviously a very talented writer, had a great history. He just wasn't for us, and we weren't for him. Tom, Tom of course, as you know, is also a great cartoonist, and he has his, his handwriting has almost a cartoonist look yeah. to it, right? It's, it's, it seems like it's ready to be published as part of his, part of his cartoon. I always wonder, because I never saw Max Pross, because I always saw Tom Gamble, you see sometimes, and... When he was on, yeah. when they were on Saturday Night Live, I, I didn't know if that was a real person. And then I was I was told he actually is a human being. It's 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 possible to meet Tom and not be sure. <laughs> no, Max Max was the always was the quieter of the two. Tom was very much the front man of the two. But but Max was a really good guy. Uh, you know, people always talk about the wild and crazy writers. I might Tom Max Pross would come up from the what is it the GNC the the health food stores he used to have in the bottom. Of, you know, Max will come up after lunch and says, they have a new flavor of rice cake. So that's, you know, that's how exciting you know, the writers of the Letterman show were. But, but they were, you know, Tom was, what, Tom was more eccentric and more interesting, Mike more the front went bad. And Max was always very, the more quiet one, but Max was very funny. They're both very funny. Yeah, the reason I asked that is because when you had that prime, the 90-minute special in place of Saturday Night Live, mm-hmm. the writers did, um, like, stupid writer tricks. Right, and, and Tom and Max sent all old guys out in places. Right, so I knew, but I knew Tom Gamble was a real person because from Saturday Night Live, he he, you know, he's in the background of some sketches. But I didn't know didn't know what Max Pross actually looked like. So I know Max, and I also I know Max's brother Bruce, who lives here in New York, who's, who's a really nice guy too. So uh, and Bruce used to be he used to work as an editor. I, saw, I think sound editor on film. He's going to kill me. I don't have his credits right, but 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 Bruce, you'll see Bruce's name on a, on a lot of credits from the movies. The first anniversary, where they had the yeah. first baby born, and it was Marv Albert versus Vince McMahon. Yeah. Um. Any any memories of that? None. Uh, by the time we got to Jim Downey, I, the, the period, my memories are faulty. Ask me anything about the first year beyond uh, before that. Uh, you know the the fame, some of the famous stories, Andy Kaufman, any of those. I was going to say Andy, Ka- Andy Kaufman, Jerry Lawler. Yeah, that was the night. Um, I don't know if anybody else interviewed was there that night, but that was memorable. 
Um, everybody asks if we knew that it was going to happen. If it was, I think I can say with great confidence that nobody on the show knew. I remember, for example, that uh, that uh, Bob Morton, who was you know the segment producer at that time, you know, we all came up after this was over and saying what, and we're trying to figure this out. And so we went to Bob immediately, and Bob said, "All I can tell you is I went into Andy's dressing room after." after it was over and his cheek was a little red where Jerry hit him, but he was giggling and said, wasn't it wonderful? So that was the, the first clue. I, I think we all knew that something was up obviously, but we didn't know, you know, the, the show had to stop tape. We never stopped tape. The show stopped tape for about 10 minutes. Meanwhile, Andy, who you remember seeing ranting and raving on the stage was running up and down the hallways calling for the police. You know, somebody arrest Jerry Lawler. He's, he's running about, you know, live and five tapes across the hall. I don't know. I don't know how that affected their show. Um, but that, you know, we were all sort of just carried away by the, what was going on. Um, I think it was great. I mean, it's great television. And I think Dave was very happy ultimately. But it was an interesting evening, to put it mildly. You could say some of those words on TV, but what you can't do is throw coffee. Yeah, they cannot, right. That was great. Uh, yeah, David loved loved it when things got wrong. You you remember the uh, Calvert's Christmas Carol thing? The the the, the he was supposed to read, and uh, nobody had provided him with a script. So Calvert was sort of thought he had to ad lib for about five minutes, <laughs> uh, and then he cut back to David and saying he said it was magic, wasn't it? <laughs> so he, he loved it when those kind of things happened on the show. When um. When Calvert was giving people hot towels at the... After my time. It was after your time. Okay. Yeah, we, we did. I, I think the show shifted in the way they used them after we left. And I, from what I hear, Calvert didn't mind this at all. But we didn't try to put him in situations where he, would go, he was going to mess up. Because I, I, I thought that was like, unkind, would have been unkind. But I know they did it afterwards. And I know if I, you know, I would run into Calvert and I asked him, uh, he never minded any of that stuff. He was fine with it. You know, Calvert was a, was a guy who had dreamed of being a star all his life. He had been, you know, and now he was one. And I think everything that, that happened, I think he was just fine with it. He didn't mind if people made fun of him. He didn't mind him. You know, he, he just enjoyed being a star. I mean, he would, you know, we had Bob Hope on the show and Bob Hope knew so I had seen him. So here's Calvert DeForest, you know, talk, talking to Bob Hope and Bob said, Bob Hope saying, yeah, you're really funny. And, you know, that, can you imagine? If you had got to Calvert's age and suddenly you were on terms and speaking terms with Bob Hope, it, it must have been an extraordinary thing. There was a Life magazine or People magazine profile of him that showed what he looked like when he was a young actor. And then, uh, and he was working in a methadone clinic, right? The story, this, I love this story because it, when it came, he kept that job for about six months into the show. Nobody was, who was watching the show from the beginning at that point? Nobody knew. So what happened was, it was, I think, a Washington Post article that tipped, the, tipped this for the first time. Who wrote a, They wrote a profile of Calvert, and somebody in the office saw that, and they had to let Calvert go because Calvert's job was a civil service job. And in civil service jobs, you cannot have two jobs if you have a civil service job. In other words, you can either be a receptionist at a drug rehabilitation clinic or a TV star, but you can't be both. you got to pick one. And I guess Calvert picked TV star for whatever reason. To go through my Rolodex for late, for 82. Yeah. All right. But you have a Rolodex, so you must be older than most people. <laughs> you have, still have a Rolodex. Well, no, my mental Rolodex. 
Oh, your mental relatives. Oh, well, we all have those. Right. Except mine is, and, and my age, most of the cards are missing. Lorne Michaels was a guest in the first year. I have no memory of that. He might have been. You know, it's funny. Uh, you, you know Don Giller, I'm sure, of course. Yes. Of course who, who is our, he's our collective memory. You know, it's, it's beyond the point of what he did in terms of preserving us. But he also tells us, you know, I, I've told stories of things that happened on the Letterman show that I, that he proves to me are wrong. You know, he just comes out and says, no, your memory is, can, this cannot be true. I remember one time that, that I know that the first time Jerry Seinfeld was on, he was bumped for time. And it, and I knew Jerry a little bit because Carl had, had been trying to be a stand-up comic at, at, at the same time that Jerry was working at, at the comic strip, which is in my neighborhood. So I, remember, I met Jerry at that point. So I remember, for example, I remember when Jerry was bummed um, that first night, I sort of peeked into his dressing room uh, because I, you know, I knew him not well, but I knew him to say hi to. And I, I leaned and I said, well, Jerry, I, I have no stature to say this, but we're sorry. <laughs> because nobody, I didn't know anybody else was saying it. Uh, and I always used to tell that story. In my version of the story, Dick Cavett had been a guest that night, and he had carried on one more segment by, than he was supposed to, uh, and that that's how, why, why the, uh, Jerry got bumped. And Don proved to me that Dick Cavett was not on the night that Jerry Seinfeld was on, so I have no idea why Jerry was bumped the first <laughs> anymore. So all my stories have to be filtered. I have to check all my historical stories through Don. By the way, that's where I got... May 6, 1982, and Kirk Hancock. Of course. Of course. I, I mean, I have asked occasionally. There are things, you know, I, I didn't, I, I, you know, I saw a lot of people, I think, when they leave the show, stop watching it. I, I think it's actually not uncommon with writers. I didn't know, for, I had written a, a prop gag uh, for the new products, the, the Rabbit Dog Shaving Cream Dispenser was my joke. And I didn't know for probably another decade or so that that was used on two anniversary shows. And it's because of Don, I have actually seen those clips now. I had never seen those clips. Didn't even know about them. So it, it's interesting, you know, if, when you leave a show and if you don't follow it, and I, I think I spoke with some of the other Letterman writers, and, you know, over the times, and I don't think they watched much after that either. You just don't, you lose, lose track of the actual history. You know, I, I read, when I read uh, Jason Zinneman's book about the Letterman show, I learned a lot of stuff I didn't know. Mm. And you're in that. You're quoted in that book. I, I, I make I make a, my appearances for a couple of pages in there. Um, a, a cameo appearance in the in the early chapters. Well, Jerry will be. I, you know, Jerry should be a great interview. Jerry is wonderful. Jerry goes back to Dave, as you know, to the to L.A. days. So no one's known David longer or worked for him longer than Jerry, and uh, also a great guy. So you, you'll have a wonderful interview. Yeah, he seems like he's. Almost like Buddy from the Dick Van Dyke Show. Maybe not the personality, but he has. Mm, yeah, not that's not Jerry's personality, but I know what you're saying. But he has the joke. Uh, he has the joke. He's got a joke. Yeah, he has them ready. Right. He's just very, very, very clever. He was the guy. Who, so we sort of, you know, we would look, we would ask Jerry, you know, for give us. A, are we where? Are we going in the right direction? What do you think? You'd be, you know, sort of help us out. So I used to call him my mentor, which he would, which he would shoot down immediately. I remember when he when he uh, his last show when he retired, mm -hmm. Dave asked him uh, about you know all the work that he's done over the years. He goes, he's like, to be honest, the last five years I just you know walked out of my office and told how everybody how good the show hasn't been since I actually you know was writing on it. 
Just a great thing to say. We all know that that's true for all of us. I mean, clearly, the first year was the best year of Michelle. I mean, there's no argument, there's no debating this, right? That, that, that the first year was the finest work, finest writing, finest jokes. No argument. <laughs> I hope. You know, you should have waited it out if you thought. Did you, you quit, I'm guessing? No, we didn't quit. We were, uh, the, 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 the writing was on the wall when Jim was there, and our, our options weren't picked up. And that, you know what? That's fine because we had, we had talked about quitting. Before this happened, we were not happy, and we left, and it was fine. But you know, he I didn't want to write for day for the rest of my life. I would have certainly stayed longer, but I. Uh, it's limited. You're only writing one voice, basically. The only times really get to expand from that. We did a number of cold openings with guest stars, which we loved to do because it was another voice. We wrote bits for Steve Allen. We wrote for comedy for Edwin Newman. Not everybody can claim that. Uh, those who don't remember, Edwin, Edwin Newman was a newscaster at NBC. Um, and we wrote a number of those things. That was always fun. And if you were a male, it was fun because you could do anything with it. And you know, we were also wrote for Calvary, but basically you're writing one voice. And it was a great voice, and we loved writing it. But eventually, you know, you want to try other things. So we, one, one way or the other, we would have left. But uh, it was not our own decision. Right. I'm just saying because he left, like, shortly thereafter. Jim did? To do the new show. Lauren Michaels. Yeah. Yeah. And then the moment those guys were offered the, the, the primetime show, I, you know, Tom and Max left with with Jim. Uh, so, yeah, they didn't, they didn't last much longer. Um, Steve O'Donnell, who is the one writer of that show who has become a real, who is, is a real friend at this point that I'm really close to, uh, I would have loved to, I would have worked with Steve. I would have loved to work with Steve as a head writer, but it was not to me. Well, there was no drugs and there, were no, there was no sex on that show, believe me. <laughs> at least not that we were, that the writers were involved in. I don't know about anybody else, but... Uh, <laughs> Again, after my time, and I, anything I know, I learned from Jason's book. Right. So I didn't, I didn't know any of this. Stuff. I'm just saying it's got to be hard. It would be hard for the for the, any sex to happen if it's all male writing staff, except for one woman, she's dating the host. Right. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. Right. Uh, yeah. No. Yeah. It, it was not. It was. You know. It, it was a very concentered show. I mean, we were not crazy people. The, you know, we were all very focused. I think all the writers were focused. Meryl, Meryl kept us focused, and because she was very focused. We knew what we were doing, and that's what the show was. You know, I think one of the things that bothered me when when Jim came on, it was his, it was his habit of working from SNL, was to start like midday and then work into the night. And I, to me, you know, my my I, to me it was a job. You come in the morning, do your job, check out at, at uh, six thirty or seven when the show was over. You know, I, I didn't. I, I don't think I, anybody writes their best at, at midnight. I didn't. I didn't feel the feel I would, you know, wrote that way. Uh, and I don't think it worked works particularly well for, uh, you know, for a daily show. I mean, you can't argue with the success of SNL. I'm not, and I'm not arguing with it at all. I just don't, if, you know, that's one of the reasons we weren't happy because we no longer can even function the way we were used to. Right. Harry Shearer once said, why couldn't SNL just work from nine to five? It would, it would, he said it could work. It would work just as well. Well, I, if you're not, if your mental clock doesn't work that way, maybe it doesn't. You know, uh, I can't, I, I don't want to speak for other writers. You know, I, I think that if you do a weekly show, maybe you have that kind of leeway from only doing one show a week. I just think the, the machinery of doing a daily, a four day a week show, which we were doing in the time we were there, it, it didn't work for us. And, you know, it, it is what it is. We've moved on. And we've had some, we had some amazing experiences after that. So yeah. I'm very happy, you know, happy to, the, the, and none of those, again, back to Marilyn David, nothing that happened to me 
I think, or Carl, and or Carl after that, didn't happen in some part because they had taken that shot with us. So my gratitude to them is, is lifelong. Randy Cohen you know? said the exact same thing. Yeah, and, and, and I, I heard Andy say that on your show as well, that, that yeah. Merrill was really responsible. It, it's the, they were the golden doorway. You know, I mean, when, when uh, the, our first major gig after we left the show was with Robert Klein, as you said before, that happened because Barry Sand produced, put, pitched us to that. Uh, Robert had called him and said he was looking for some writers. And, and Barry said, Harry gave him our names and said, they're the best. Hire. And Robert didn't even interview us first. He just hired us on the spot because Barry had said that. And was, and that, was that for TV's bloopers and practical jokes? The first thing we did for him was there were remote segments, like they were streets of New York things. No sense of what, what Dave did, but in a very different style because Robert's style is completely different than Dave's. So that's what that was. And it was really operating. It was almost like, like uh, student films again. We, we, there was no studio, no nothing, but we operated out of the back of vans and cars. You know, we would meet, uh, we would work, we, we wrote those really with Robert. We would meet with Robert before those and, and we would throw ideas around. Then we then we take what we'd come up with that and we'd come back and write, write a script for it. Um, and then we would go out, you know, in, in cars and shoot around the city. Uh, so it was very haphazard, you know, but it was a lot of fun. And um, Robert was wonderful to work for. It's, it's a, you know, it's it's a very different. He's a very different kind of a person, personality than Dave. And David tends to be very private and keep to himself. Robert was very open, and you know, you worked directly with we worked directly with Robert, and we did two seasons of that, and uh, that was a, that was nothing but fun. We, had, we used to go to edit sessions on those with Robert. And, you know, it would take forever. We worked like for eight hours on these edit sessions because we always wanted to see every, everything, how we were to do a five minute segment. But it was, it was such a treat. You know, we were just sitting there with Robert Klein and creating this stuff. And uh, we loved doing it. And, and then Robert asked us to work on his talk show a couple of years later. Yeah, I mean, you know, Robert, at, the, at the time, the time we worked with him, he had an apartment on Fifth Avenue. And so he was very much a city guy at that time. And eventually he sort of moved up to the country more more where he lives now uh, and, and gave up his New York New York place. Um, but that, again, that was a great, the whole experience on both of those was, was wonderful. Um, the talk show was, was I, I don't know if you know the name Joe, Joe Cates, Joseph Cates, he was a- the Phoebe Cates' father? That's Gil yeah. Cates, oh yeah. That's how he used to introduce himself when, when, I, when I was working with him. But he went all the way back to the 50s. He produced so much television, he was, one of the legendary TV producers, and he produced the first, the first two seasons of Robert Show, Talk Show, which is when we worked with him. And 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 he had a he owned a townhouse, and he worked out of his basement. So we would meet in 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 uh, Joe Cates's basement, which was where his family also lived. So we would see Phoebe in the morning, and we, as we we're coming in, hi Phoebe, hi Steve, hi Carl, you know, very sweet girl. And uh, that's how we made that show. And then we would, you know, then we would meet had a studio, there was a studio they worked at, I can't remember where it was. We would do the show there, but but it all worked out of Joe Case's basement. But because I'm a, a comedy nerd and a show business nerd, I would love, I would try to have lunch with Joe Case whenever possible. You'd tell me all the stories, you know, about working with Jackie Gleason or working with this person or that person, all these amazing people we worked with. Uh, and Joe being Joe, there were usually stories you can't repeat, <laughs> but they were great stories. And I, I, I love that. So it was that was a great show to work on too. Now, at any point, did you see Robert Klein stop his leg? 
he will never stop his leg until until God stops his leg, which I hope is in the far distant future. Because uh, the man can't stop his leg. Huh? He cannot stop his leg. And uh, I don't know if you did. Have you seen the documentary that was made about him called uh, by Marshall Fine called uh, Robert Klein Still Can't Stop His Leg? That's the name of the documentary. Uh, it's a wonderful piece. It was on, uh, I think, I can't remember what, I think it was on Showtime for a while, and now you'd, I think you have to buy it, but I heartily recommend it. You can see me in it briefly if you know where to look. I, I, I was interviewed, but didn't make the final cut because for some reason they wanted to, talk, to use clips with people like Jerry Seinfeld and Billy Crystal instead of aging comedy writers. But I'm in some of the group scenes in, in the corners in different places. Yeah, that documentary, I recommend to anybody who knows Robert's work at all and loves it. It's hard to find those documentaries because I, I wanted to watch the one uh, Quality Balls, the David Steinberg story, and I, I can't find that anywhere either. I don't know. I, I, at this point, you might man, might have to buy Robert's documentary, but it was on for quite a while. You know, what happens is they air when they air on something like Showtime, then it goes into their streaming files. And if you don't know it's there, you, you know, you're not you're going to you wouldn't know about it unless you stumbled on it. So I know it was there for a while. And I, I hope it was Showtime. I hope I'm right on that. Uh, I will be informed, I'm sure, if I was not. But uh, it's worth tracking down. I think they did put a DVD out of it, so I think we could, could, be, could track it down. Right. Uh, if not, I'm sure it can be pirated somewhere. Just don't tell Marshall. You know, King of Disease used to be on YouTube, and I never knew how it got on there. I never knew. And then disappeared. I never knew, never knew why it went away. I actually have no objection to it being up there. So I, wonder, I keep wondering whether I should put it up myself at this point. Uh, but uh, who knows how these things happen? You know, at this point. Then you went to the new Mickey Mouse Club. Right. This was an, this was a story. Uh, I this was a job that we didn't want because we neither of us had interest in children's programming. Um, neither of us particularly thought this was a great idea to bring back the Mickey Mouse Club. But they had they this they really wanted us because what they what happened was. So I think we heard this from that the story was that Michael Eisner was the one who wanted the Mickey Mouse Club to come back and he sort of made the, the one and said, put on the Mickey Mouse Club and make it hip. So all of the executives were scurrying around trying to figure out what a hip Mickey Mouse Club would be like. So the executives started looking for people who were associated with shows that were considered hip. So they really wanted us. We didn't, we came in, <laughs> um, they had done a pilot. The pilot was a disaster. Uh, um, and um, they knew it was a disaster and they were interviewing us at the time and they actually did not, this has never happened to me and I know there are people who live like this or work like this we're not one of them among them but they flew us down to what to meet with executives during the making of the pilot and they flew us down on the first class on the morning took us to the set we had we saw the show being shot we met with the executives put back in a car that the guy who actually was driving us was working on the show said, we have a little time before the airport. Uh, you want to go back, go in Epcot and go on some rides? Sure. Let's go Epcot and go on some rides. Takes us back to the airport. We're back and I'm home. And I walk into my, to Lori's, my wife's Lori's room and say, hi, honey, I'm home back from Florida for the day. Um, this is, this was an unusual experience in my life. Okay. This is not usual. Um, so then, then they, they, what happened is they brought in a new head writer to do the series itself. So we had another, job interview uh and that was with a guy named alan silverberg who is one of the, the nicest and best guys i've ever worked with anywhere 
But I didn't know. We didn't know. And, 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 and Steve Thomas, who was going to be the producer overall, another wonderful guy, we went in for this other meeting, and we didn't know we were being vetted again. We thought we had the job already. We found out later we were being vetted again. But the truth was, I said, we didn't want the job. So we were very relaxed. So if anything, I was the complete opposite of what I was like at the Letterman interview. And I think we both gave a really good interview because we didn't give a damn. We were completely relaxed. And I remember because I was really worried about, can you really write hip humor for Disney? I mean, how do you do this? Won't they just vet everything? And I remember, I remember that at one point in the meeting, um, Dave Clemens was trying to sell us on the show. And he said, we have these, this incredibly talented cast of kids. You know, they all have these different talents. And as you get to work, meet them and know them and get to work with them, you're really going to enjoy it because they're so talented. I stopped. I said, wait a minute. Are you telling me we're actually going to have to meet these kids? Because that could be a deal breaker. Now, that's a joke that could have lost us the job, you know, if it was Disney as I envisioned it. But the room laughed. And, and I remember thinking at the moment, oh, they get it. You know, they get it. So maybe this is not the worst thing in the world. Well, it turned out we, we took, the, took the job, as I always say, they had an overwhelming offer, uh, overwhelming argument. They offered us money. So we, we took the job and we went and we moved to Florida, to, to Orlando. I uh, wound up spending, I never gave up my New York apartment. So I wound up probably breaking even for the job because I was paying rent in two different cities. Um, but it turned out to be, at least for the first three of the four seasons we worked there, one of the best jobs I ever had in my life. Uh, the people were wonderful. The writers were great. They were, we, we worked very much as a team there. And it was, Letterman, just because of the nature of the show, I think we were all sort of worked in our own little cubby holes and our own little worlds. Letterman, and on the Mouse Club, we all worked with each other. We became really close friends. We would travel in clumps. You know, the, the, they would say Alan and the writers would be, going to lunch together, going here together, and then we just, we were like this little ball of people. We, we are all still friends. I'm still friends with the, the kid, Mouseketeers who are now in their 40s, who I still call the kids. Uh, they were very amazingly talented. And it became a fun show to write because we didn't write it as if we were writing a kid show. We just wrote, we came in the morning and said, well, you know, like any other show, what's funny? And if you're writing for a kid cast, you're gonna write about their lives or, or the lives of kids. So we wrote, we got to exercise all of our ghosts of our childhood. So, you know, most comedy writers, you probably know by now, have completely screwed up childhoods in one way or another. So we all basically were exorcising all of our demons on the Mickey Mouse Club. We just wrote sketches about horrible things happening to, to, to children. And it was funny. <laughs> so it worked. Uh, and, and it was a treat. We had a really great time. It, it went a little sour in the fourth season, not because of the people who worked on the show, but the executives changed and they, they got much more controlling of the show and a lot of the stuff that we got away with in the first few seasons we could no longer do in the fourth season. At that point, all of us collectively, that first group, we all said to each other, this is it, and we left. And then they brought in a whole new production team for the, for the final seasons. But we left loving each other which is you don't usually walk out of a TV show loving the people you work with. You might be, make a few friends along the way. You might like them. You'd be happy to see them if you run into them. But you don't make lifelong friends generally from working on, on a TV show. We, we came out as lifelong friends. Uh, we are still in touch. All, you know, the, the producers, the, the, the Steve Clements unfortunately passed away. But Alan, I'm still friends with. You know, we had a 30th anniversary reunion about to three years ago. And I flew in for this and, you know, it was, it was like a family reunion. It was like, oh, here are the kids, you know, and they're all grown up. 
and we all just tugged and, and cried and carried on. So it's an unusual, unusual experience. You know, I don't know if it was the best show I ever worked on if you were watching it, but I think there was a lot of funny stuff on that show. And, you know, I would tell, I would try to coerce my friends to watch the show saying, and they were, and, and say, you know, it's actually not bad, you know, give it a try. And if, if they would come back and say, you know, this is funny. And I said, well, I told you, I told you it was funny. Um, it, was, it was a pretty good show. You know, it had a little, it had these elements like the, that we had to promote the park and things like that to make me make your skin crawl. But it was what it was, and we we got a lot of, we we got a lot of away with a lot of stuff on that show. We parodied Disney all the time. They loved that. They thought that was hip. So we can, we had the, the Disney characters on the show, uh, and we would make fun of the characters. We would have our kids play the characters, and then we would get to make fun of Disney tropes and stuff. And uh, and they loved it. They couldn't get enough. And do you remember working with Britney Spears and and? No, I didn't because they. We, we worked the first four seasons. The, 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 the season that had all the famous, super famous kids was the seventh season, actually. Not, not even the fifth or sixth, but for some reason, the kids they got in, in, in the seventh season, they got Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, Tim, Justin Timberlake, Ryan Gosling. Uh, it, it was amazing. The, the only two, the, the two that I worked with who became famous, and that was only in the fourth season, was uh, Carrie Russell. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, JC became to work on uh, became part of NSYNC, but uh, the, nobody, only the people who worked on the seventh season knew the super famous ones. It was just a, a, a weird dice roll. We had a, a guy, the guy who who hired the kids, who scouted kids on the show. He went all over the country and got kids who were non pros, people in small towns, things like that. He had an eye. He was just, and, and I don't think, to be perfectly honest. The ones who didn't become as famous, the ones I with, some of them did not become as famous as the other ones. I don't think they were any less talented than the ones who became the superstars. The kids I worked with were amazingly talented, and, and they, they many of them were hired for either. Well, one was just a great voice, one was a great comic, one was this, was that, and but they all learned on the job. So they, so the ones who were who were singers became actors. The ones who became actors became singers. They all learned to dance. Showbiz boot camp. Uh, so they learned everything and you would watch them grow and expand, you know, as performers, they would come in as children and they would, and they would leave as pros, you know, they, they could handle anything. By the time we left kids who would, who might've been lost on a set the, the first day were handling that they were running everything. And now basically the mouse, the mouseketeers are all, as I said, in their forties, they're running their lives. They, they started booking themselves around the country, doing, you know, reunion shows, nostalgia shows, performing around the country. And it's wonderful. I love I love that they're working again. I love that they're working. I, whatever I get to see them, I have to talk to them. I'm very happy. They're nice people. You were much too young to watch the original Mickey Mouse Club. I was much too young to watch it when it started. I was not too young to watch the reruns. I'm sorry to say. I remember the reruns very well. So I knew the, I knew the original Mouse Gears, and we did a reunion. That's right. Which was, again, another wonderful experience we had. Annette Vinicello, her last, I think her last public performance as an actress, I mean, she spoke again, but we got her as a performer on the show. Uh, Sharon Baird, Bobby Burgess, uh, Tommy Bond, I think, well, not Tommy Bond, that's uh, our, our gang. Um, and then Tommy, there's the Tom, um, uh, uh, Don Grady was on the, uh, you know, a number of these, uh, Sherry Alberoni, uh, just, and they were, they were wonderful to work with. They, they couldn't have been nicer. And we tried to do something a little different on the show. We, rather than making a big deal, trying to fit our work to their work, 
we put we integrated it into our world. We we had running characters and running sketches, so we worked them into our sketches, you know, with our running characters. And I, you know, I think they had, you know, from my speaking to them, they had a great time. I think, and it, it was a good show. It's on. You can find that on most of that on YouTube if you, if you look for it. Yeah. Um, the whole new production came team came in after we left, top to bottom. <laughs> the people who stayed on, there were people who worked in city people and people who were like production staff, but the, the, the above the line kind of people, that's all new. <laughs> and the writers were all new. So I don't know how it worked. You know, everything changes. So that's news to me. Well, the, the last scene was also on the show was going on once a week. Right. So that, that had to be a different thing because we were there, you know, we were constantly running. We were like on a treadmill. And, you know, we, we would write in the morning and we would come to rehearsals and yeah, that's why we always worked with kids because the show was constantly being shot, being shot every day. So we would come to rehearsals, make sure that, that everything was working out fine, run back to the office while they were taping, we we're writing the next more shows. You know, that's how we work. <laughs> so, yeah, it would have been very different by that time. But, you know, the, the kids, the, there are still some of that show who are friends of ours, one of them. At that point, the co-hosts were uh, Chase, 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 and Hampton, and and uh, Tiffany Hale were both from my era. And Tiffany, Tiffany passed away recently, which is a, a huge blow to us uh, at forty-six, and uh, very, very sad. She was a sweet girl, you know. I, I don't know if if your cousin knew her at all, or even just to say hi to. But if if she knew her at all, she knew what a, well, she a stayed, nice girl she was. She stayed throughout the run. Yeah. So Tiffany was there. Well. What happened was they in, in the third season they had the idea to make this pop group called the Party. This was a time that you know New Kids on the Block was hot and a lot of that. So they took a bunch of our kids and they made them a group called the the Party. And then they were only available to us coming and going. They were not around all the time the way some of the other Musketeers were. So that was Chase and Damon Albert, who is now called Jean Pierre, uh, and uh, Tiffany and Dee Dee. And uh, they traveled, they made records, they toured the world, but then they would come back and we would get them for a while for the show and then they would go off again. Um, so they were not a regular part of the show, but we had adult co-hosts all the time I was there, I think through the six, season six. In season seven, they decided to go with making Chase and Tiffany, who had been part of the party, as the co-hosts of the show, uh, just for that season. Yeah, I'm, I apologize for not watching that, but I was about... <laughs> I was about 14, 15 years old, and I don't think I would have... You were too old. No. You're too old, but I bet if you... If I send you some clips, you might still... You might actually find funny. That they, they stand on their own now. I have sent some to friends, and they do things. So, you know, we were parodying things that were commercials at the time. We had a... I think something was popular. Uh, I, Hillary Rollins, a wonderful writer on the show, and I wrote it. You remember when My Little Pony was very hot? Yeah, okay. And we did, we did, a, we did a thing, a commercial for... My not so little pony, which is a full-grown pony who just was had the paint and the thing, and uh, had, you know you could have a full pony in your room, um, which causes its own problems. But if you see, if you went online and saw that, I think you might find that still pretty funny. Yeah. Like myself, like like I'm like there's an Asian waving. No, if you've seen this material, you can hire them. <laughs> not that, but I'm I am proud of the show. I think all of us working on the show are really proud of it. I mean, I know it's I a mean, ma- it still has a massive fo- following today. I know. Uh, <laughs> You, you want to know it's really funny? When we left the show, I, I, we left that show, my agent told me, don't even list it on your credits because it won't do you any good. Now, some years later, I get I, I think I get more questions about that show than I do about Letterman. And I, I, was, I remember having this conversation with, with, with one of our ex-Mousketeers, 
Uh, and I said to him, you know, my agent told me, and he'd been, you know, a major part of the show. This, and, and I remember saying to him on the phone, just, you know, my agent told me not to put it on my credits. And, and, and he said, my agent told me exactly the same thing. But now he's part of the reunion thing too. It, it's, it's really has acquired a life very similar to the, to the one the original show had. And I would not have predicted that, to be honest with you. I really wouldn't have. I'm in my 40s, so like, right. I'm, a, I'm a teacher in New York City, and the people ask me, "Well, who are you having? Who are you talking to on Saturday?" And I'll be like, "Oh, I'm talking to Steve Weiner. He uh, he wrote for Letterman and TV and for Robert Klein and the New Mickey Mouse Club." And they're like, and if they're in their early 30s, their eyes lit up. Uh, no, it's, the, the, we, they, I think they run into them all the time. The the, the mouse, the ex Musketeers. Uh, it, it became a part of the, of a, a generation's childhood. Yeah. Uh, I see them on on Facebook. You know, they they they, re, they reach out to me as well as to the Musketeers, and uh, you know, it, it, there was it was always a, a range. Even at the time, there were ones who just you know there were girls who watched the show because some they thought well the boys were cute. But we had what well I don't know if this reference means anything to you, but we even at the time we read the mail and we had what I call the Rocky and Bullwinkle kids, the ones who got what we were trying to the comedy we were trying to do. And I hear for them now, the ones who grew up, and they get they got the jokes. They remember the comedy sketches, which I would not have put money on. I really would not have put, guessed that at all. Did Disney? You, you never know. You throw things out there, you don't know what's coming back to. Did Disney, when you were there, ever claim the '70s version of the Mickey Mouse Club? I don't know what you mean by claim. Like, did they yeah, ever I mean, bring on Lisa Welchel? You know, Blair oh, from the Fact of Life. Well, that was considered a disaster at the time. And I know that that was one of the reasons they were very worried. They said, "Don't do, don't do the '70s show. You know, don't do, don't make the mistakes that they that we made and or they whoever did it at the time did in the '70s." So that was held up as as a name. Now, nothing against people working on the show because some of those performers became famous too. But I think they. I remember when that show came on. I think they were trying to do something in the '70s that had a lot of the flavor of the original '50s right. show, and it just the '70s weren't the '50s. Too saccharine. And then and the '90s weren't the '70s. So we they did do that. To their credit, they said, make a show for now when we were there. They didn't always have the same vision of what that meant, but that's what they wanted. That's what they asked for. Because when Disney Plus started, the new Mickey Mouse Club, the one that you were associated with, was supposed to come on, but they made a mistake and they put the 70s new Mickey Mouse Club. And within two weeks, it was off. The story I hear is that our our show cannot be put on because the music rights are so expensive. I know that the, that the, the fans of that show have been writing constantly to, the, to Disney Plus saying, could you please stream the show? Uh, we, we, should, we would too, because then we'd get paid. And we'd, we, you know, we'd be happy if they did. But the, 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 the problem is always on these kind of shows, if you go back and look when they've released classic variety shows like the Carol Burnett show yeah. and things like that, they cut out the music, the song, because that's where the expense is, because the music rights are so overwhelming. Well, the same, as you know, the same things happened with Don. I mean, people reach out to Don for material they can't get any other way. People who are on the show, worked on the show. Yeah. Um, you know, when, 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 I mean, I knew, I knew Don way back in the early, you know, when early after we had left at that time, you know, he, he was just a guy who loved the show and he wanted to write about it. But he, I knew he'd been recording these things. Um, and uh, this is, I think, public knowledge now that as of this week, Worldwide Pants has hired Don to, to help curate the channel that they've started. So, you know, cultivate your fans because the fans are the, have become the historians. They're the ones who do the work. Um, you know, uh, I, I think Don will understand what I mean when I say that I've always said that the nice thing of things about a thing about obsessive compulsives is that they do the work so you don't have to. Mm. So that, 
so that we want to know who was on what show what day. Don, what was who's on that show? What day? It was March 14th, and it was, it was 4th. That, you know, God bless Don for doing it. I'll tell him, because I tried to get him on, and he, he said, well, no, I'll do a print interview. And I'm like, well, that's not mm-hmm. how a podcast works. But I will email him and... I will email you should do a print, you do a print podcast and get, then get an actor to read Don's part. That's not a bad idea. No one will ever know. Get, is, get, yeah, is, get, get, uh, I'm trying to think who would be good to play Don. <laughs> I, I daren't say. But, uh, John but Hamm. Huh? John Hamm. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> I, that is, that's, that's Don. Get John Hamm to play Don, Don Geller and we'll, I think Don will be happy. I don't know if John will be happy. Ham will be happy, but I'm sure America will be happy. Well, right now John Ham is doing a commercial where he's he's flipping through streaming services, saying, "Why aren't I on any of these shows?" So <laughs> well, there you are. Well, just get get call his manager, get this thing together. We're going to do the Don Geller John Ham show. Okay. A couple other things. You uh, you wrote an episode of Doug, which is a very highly regarded children's show. Have you? Maybe you've seen the episode because I haven't. The story about the the Doug episode story is. One of the weirdest stories that I can honestly remember. I again, it was not. I, I would never. The, the Doug Show is a great show, but it was not us. I mean, it's not at that time. It was Hillary, Hillary Rollins, and I were writing together. But Tom, Tom uh, uh, um, Tim Grunman, who was a writer on the Mickey Mouse Club, who since passed away, one of the most brilliant comic minds I've ever met. He was for a while after we left the Mouse. He was the head writer for the Doug. Now it was not. It was. It's. It's common knowledge that Doug was sort of based on, and I can't remember the man's name. Maybe you do the the, the producer of the show. I think it was Jim something or other who created the show, and it was largely Doug was him. So everything that Tim did as head writer had to, you know, Jim. This guy had to run, get past him. But Tim hired us to write the show, and we wrote a, an, an episode, which was I think I guess Doug had a dog, and we did it like a dog pageant, competing a dog pageant was the premise. And we turned it into Tim. And uh, a while back that, he said, I'll, I'll turn it over to, I, I hope the man's name is Jim. Uh, and about a week later, Tim calls and said, I don't know how to tell you this, but the notes I got back was, your show was too funny. And, and we said, okay, never got that note before. Uh, so what does your, what, I mean, do you know what that, that means? Or he says, well, I'm not entirely sure. But do you want to take another whack at it? And I said, yeah, why not? I thought maybe you'd want a little more sentiment. Maybe that's what missed it because it was a very warm show. Nothing against that, but it was a very warm family kind of show. So we, we toned down the comedy a bit and built up the sentiment a little bit. And then we turned it in and Tim said, I'll turn this in. And the next thing we heard is, I mean, we didn't get paid. Uh, the next thing we heard was Tim saying, well, I, I don't, I'm not sure he, was, he still felt it was quite there. And that, and I think Tim eventually moved on. So I never heard, I thought the show never, was never done. And then sometime later, I, I think I was looking at, I just thought, I was looking at my IMDb credits, as one does, and I saw that we were credited for this episode of Doug. I have never seen the show. I have no idea what it, what the episode looked like. I have no idea if any of our material made it into the air. Uh, it's the great mystery. If there is a Don Giller for Doug in your audience, let me know. You know what? I, I can I can look for you. I can look for you. Okay, but I would. I'm not sure I'd even recognize any our, any of our jokes anymore. It's been so long. So it's it's. Uh, but I would be happy to see a copy of it if anybody has a copy. But they want to send. I just want to see if our names are literally on the screen because it's news to me. Okay, and you worked with 
uh, Dave, uh, Dick Van Dyke when he was hired yeah. for yes, Nickelodeon. It was the greatest thrill of my life, pretty much. I watched my, my father and I discovered the Dick Van Dyke show together. They, when I was a kid, they, they, you know, my father heard it was a great show and he loved comedy. It was about comedy writers, so he knew writers. He was a writer, uh, and so he, he said to me, Let's watch the show together. We fell in love with the show. And Dick Van Dyke became a touchstone for me for my entire life. Has been, still is. Um, one of the one of the things I wanted to get in the business to do, I was too late to write for the original show. I said, if I can write for Dick Van Dyke, you know, it would be like the thrill of my life. The first spec script that Carl and I ever wrote was for the new Dick Van Dyke show, which was on CBS. We were in college, as I said. Um, and, you know, when you get to a certain age, your childhood dreams start to sort of fade away because you figure there's just no way this is going to happen. Well, what happened was Hillary had started actually at, at Nickelodeon as a writer, and they, she knew a lot of the people there. And they called her. They were doing this special with Dick Van Dyke. The premise was at that point, Dick was, was officially being called the chairman of Dick and Mike. And they were going to do a show called Chairman's Choice, in which Dick would pick out his five favorite episodes and introduce them. And they asked Hillary to write it. And originally it was pitches that were like, like promotions, it was commercials or something. It wasn't pen, pitches on the show. And Hillary called me up and said, listen, I have this job offer from Nick at, Nick at Night. Uh, it, it's, uh, I don't know, it's kind of commercials or promotions. And I'm like, well, you know, uh, commercials, I don't know, is that really something we should be doing at this point in our careers? And she said, it's, it's for Dick Van Dyke. And I said, what time do you want me with? Mm. And uh, it, it turned into an actual show. And it literally was childhood fantasy come true. Uh, I, I vividly remember we went to a meeting in the New York offices with the Nick and Knight people, and they got Dick Van Dyke on the phone from California on the speaker phone. And uh, the, the, whoever was hosting the meeting said, and uh, this is, and near the writers, it's, this is Steve and, and Hillary. And I heard Dick Van Dyke's voice saying, hi, Steve, hi, Hillary. And I, I turned to, to Hillary and I, my jaw was like on the ground. Because, you know, you just you have to imagine 30 plus years of my life at that point, hearing Dick Van Dyke say my name. And uh, so we, were, we, we wrote the script and uh, we did a little show based on, we got some reunion people on the show. We got uh, Larry uh, Matthews who played Richie. We, we got, uh, um, uh, who else was it? I'm trying to, oh, we got Kathleen, the wonderful Kathleen Freeman, great supporting comic actress who you remember from everything. The Blues Brothers. She's the Blues nun. Brothers, you're, cause you're, that's your age, but I also remember from about Jerry Lewis movies. She's in Singing in the Rain. She's the vocal coach, coach Singing in the Rain. She was the greatest, and I got her on the show because she was in one of the episodes that they chose. So we got Kathleen Freeman on the show. We got all these wonderful people. We got uh, uh, um, uh, the, the guy, Frank Adamo. Frank Adamo would have been Dick Stresser, but if you watch the Dick Van Dyke show, he always had small parts on the show. And I said, why don't we get Frank Adamo? So we got Frank. He was incredible. But the, the amazing thing is for the, all these days to sit in the studio and be working side by side with Dick Van Dyke, who, by the way, is if you were a kid and you imagine what it would be like to be Dick Van Dyke, that's what it's like. He is the nicest man in the world. A total pleasure to work with. I'm sure I must have been a pain in the neck to him because, you know, I was following around like a puppy dog. I was, I was 30-something at this point, pushing 40. And, and I was also at the same time I was 12 years old you know, with my hero. So he was so patient. And so, and, a play, and you know, we worked over the bits with him and, you know, got his input. And I think the show was fun. I think we, had, we did a fun little show. Um, 
And uh, yeah, dream come true. Have and you, how long, how long does that happen to you? Have mm-hmm. you listened to when he was on uh, Gilbert Gottfried's podcast? Mm-hmm. Uh, I was going to say, it's great. If you haven't heard it, it's great. Yeah, yeah. No, well, Gilbert, I know Frank, I, I don't know Gilbert. I know Frank said the pod room. We're old. We run into each other everywhere, everywhere for 30, 40 years now. So, uh, Frank, yeah, it's a, it's a great show, man. And yeah, here he's 96 years old. He still dances. He's still, uh, you know, he's still out there. Yeah, he made on Twitter. He made a big Twitter splash on Valentine's Day. Yeah, yeah. He and his his his, his lady, his current lady, and they, they were doing a musical number together. And it just makes me very happy. You know, there, there are a few people that you people that you go who are important to you when you were a child, and if you get as a artist, whatever they are, people you connect to, they become a part of your whole life in a way, right? And you know, I'm sure you have people like that, and the fact that. To have them, to have Dick still in the world with us, still being him, makes me happy, you know. And it would make, it would make me less happy. You know, Jerry Lewis is one of my heroes. Well, you know, Jerry Lewis is not a great guy. So it's, a, you know, it's a mixed blessing to have Jerry, be a fan of Jerry Lewis. Not a mixed blessing to be a fan of Dick Van Dyke. Not at all. Total pleasure. I remember an early thing that I thought was hysterical. When Natasha Kinski came out with that weird haircut. Oh, and then John Candy followed her with the same haircut. Yeah, well, I will tell you a story about that. Okay. This is an interesting. It's not against Stasikinski, I'm sure he's a wonderful person. We had an intern at that time, and um, later became on to be a, a top TV executive. He became, he became very successful. But he was a he was a very nice he was a nice kid, and and um, he worshipped. He was madly in love with Stasikinski, and he had that. In his cubicle, he had the, you know the famous poster of her with the snake, snake. right? And he had that on. So we he he was like he could, he was beyond. We had to like rein him back when we heard that she was going to be on the show. And what what I thought was really interesting, and it wasn't necessarily the haircut, but there's something some performers who come across on screen have a kind of charisma. The thing that that comes through the screen have that same charisma in life, or and some don't. And Nastasia Kinski on screen, on film, whatever, stunning, stunning to look at. And I don't mean this as an agnet, it's just a thing. When she walked on this show, I, I swear, I, my first thought was, you wouldn't necessarily look at her twice on the street. And I, you know what I mean? Because she didn't radiate that kind of power that she had on, on screen and in the posters, things like that. She knew how to turn that on for the camera, but she didn't carry that with her necessarily. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it may be in many ways a healthy thing. You know, they, they, they said about Marilyn Monroe, Marilyn Monroe said she could walk through the streets unnoticed because she didn't, she wasn't Marilyn Monroe when she was on the street, but she said if she won when she wanted to, she could turn on Marilyn and everybody would see her in an instant. Right. 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 And I think she made So I don't know if I remember saying to, to, to our, to our friend or the kid on the show, I said the next day, uh, um, I said, uh, were you disappointed? And he said, I think he said, a little bit. <laughs> not because of the person, because he didn't speak to her, but I thought she was going to be stunning. But, you know, it's, now, my wife handed me the story, I say, so I don't know if you want the story or not, but it's, it's one of the famous Letterman stories that I was actually there. <clears throat> do, you, do, you, do you want to, do you, are you interested in the Bill Murray story, the famous one about the, before his for the first Letterman episode, it's in it's in it was in most I think it's in Jason's book in some form and I think I know it's been in other stories. It, it's the 
what happened the week before the, the first show. Now tell it fast, and if you don't like it, it's your podcast, cut it out. Uh, you know, um, we were all, we didn't, again, it was first show coming up. We didn't know what we were doing, we anybody would But Bill Murray had had some connection, I think, with Tom and Max through, through SNL connections, whatever. And he came to the show, he wanted to do something special for the first night. So he called a meeting of the writers. And it was after, it was late, it was after the show, it was after five o'clock, it was after everybody was going home. So we all gathered in a room. I didn't, you know, I, I'd never met Bill Murray before. So Bill Murray starts to prepare the room. And that for him was, he, he had a, the old days he used to have these, you know, these big portable radios. He turned the radio on, found a station he wanted. Didn't quite like the way the sound was coming out. So he took one of the metal trash cans, emptied the trash, put it on the table, put the radio inside the can to get the right reverberation. Now he took the, one of the lamps, didn't like the lighting much, took a, somebody, borrowed a sweater from somebody, draped the sweater over the lamp so we'd have the right lighting for the room. Now he calls one of the interns who's still left, said to go, go out to get tequila to bring it. So now tequila's coming into the room. Uh, and so now, and I'm thinking in my mind, I'm, you know, I, I'm literally in show business a week and a half, two weeks, you know, three weeks. Never been on, never been teasers. I said, this is like all the stories I've ever heard about SNL, right? Like all crazy stuff. So I didn't know what was going to, where we going to be. Is it going to be a party? What was going to be, what, what was this going to turn into? Well, the moment he had it the way it wanted, he sat down and he had a real meeting. You know, we had the real meeting. We talked comedy. We were working out ideas, throwing them back and forth. Now, I have to say, you know, the the the, uh, the tequila was being well passed around by this point in the meeting. Nothing really came out of that. Nothing that was used on the air came out of this meeting. But at least we tried. We were all worked very hard and uh, tried to, to, you know, come up with something that we would like. And uh, he, ultimately, he wound up coming up, as you, you will see, the, if you've seen the first episode, all the stuff that he did that, that was all Bill's idea. He came in with that fresh. Uh, I do remember the next day coming into the office, because, you know, Marilyn David had left long before any of this was going. And I, I, I passed Marilyn, I said, you know what happened, what went on here last, last night, right? And Marilyn said, yeah, this is, when will Bill learn he can't get good material from get, by getting the writers drunk? Mm. Um, but but it, it, it became one of those stories that everybody talked about. I don't know Bill Murray. I mean, he was very easy to talk to. He, you know, he'd been on the show several times after that. He, he was an interesting man, and he's a, obviously a great talent. That's my entire Bill Murray story. Well, tell your wife that was a great story, because I'd never heard okay. it before. There's a reason. That's why I married her, because she remembers to me. <laughs> no, because I thought you were tell me the story about how he disappeared during the taping. Was that during the, the, the first year? Because I don't remember. The that. first episode. First episode disappeared? What I remember the first episode was, you remember he came out and did Let's Get Physical yeah. while he was dancing? Right, okay. So we had a, a one of our stage managers was a young woman. Uh, and if you remember, he picked her up at one point and started throwing her, right? She didn't know he was going to do that. If you look, she's wearing headphones, okay? She, he grabbed her, picked her up, and the headphones go flying. And all I could think of backstage is, we are so lucky her head didn't go with the phones. Right? Because, you know, that could have been dangerous. That, that was tight. This could have been bad. Uh, it did work out. Uh, she didn't die. I don't know if she was, um, whether she was happy to be, become part of Bill. They did cut that down, and they, they dropped in a pre-recorded bit, I think, that Tom and Max had written. 
that was originally scheduled for another night was dropped in in its place. So there is one pre-tape scene that I think in that first episode, and that's why that was in the first episode. The uh, um, Alan Alda, the man who likes Chinese food, was sort of Carl and me, but via Merrill's brainstorm. What happened was Merrill came into uh, I think everybody's office and said. I want to do something with with uh, the pictures of famous people in, in restaurants. So can you guys can you guys keep an eye on wherever you pass the restaurant? Carl and I lived on different parts parts of town. I live as I do now in Yorkville. Carl lived at the time on the Upper West Side, which I think he may still also live in that area. Um, so we were walking around the city at the, you know our parts of town, and I came in Monday morning and I said I found a Chinese restaurant which was full of pictures of Alan Alvin. And Carl laughed and he said, I found a, a restaurant on the west side that was full of pictures of Alan Aldon. So we knew this was something. So Merrill came to the office and said, Merrill, we found, I told her, I, said, I found the, an east side Alan, Chinese restaurant with Alan Alda. And Carl found a west side audience, uh, a restaurant with Alan Alda. And, and Merrill said, so the bit is Alan Alda, a man and his Chinese food. She came up with the title on the spot. Uh, and it was, it was, as they would say, it was magic. But that was, that's all, I really say that's that's Mer- Merrill and Dave. It was Merrill for coming up with the idea in the first place. It was Dave and Merrill for working out what was going to be said and how to do it, and Dave for his ad living. And what turned out as sort of accidental racism, which is that it, that nobody, none of these guys spoke English very well. This was not the aim, was not no. to make fun of people who didn't speak English well. It just is unfortunate that's what happened. The so audience laughed audience at when they were talking, yeah. Year, sometime later, late in the year, then we did a bit uh, a parody of It's a Wonderful Life. I don't know if you remember this piece, but Carl and we all wrote little bits and pieces of it. And Carl and I, since we felt sort of responsible for that, we wrote a bit for for an actor to, to play like a Chinese restaurant guy, in which the idea of the bit was he was going to say, many people say it was bad for David to make fun of his, my, re- my restaurant, but we were going to close until this happened. And now it's the most exciting, popular restaurant on the, web, on the Upper West Side. Everybody comes in. Thank you, David Letterman, for what you've done for it. You know, it's good life is what, how people live the one that's everybody's life for the, for the better. So we wrote this idea and Merrill liked it and put it, David liked it and they put it in the piece and they hired, they hired an actor. We had, they hired an actor blind, the same, the, you know, the, 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 the talent coordinator. And it turned out that the actor, the Asian actor they hired, couldn't speak English either. So he would, he, it sounded like we were making fun of the accent again. And it was never intentional. It just happened. And we were doomed. So, you know, certain portions of the Letterman show that I was involved in are probably been canceled now in the, in the great scheme of things. It wasn't our intent. It was all unintentional. All unintentional. It was not intentional. What? No, the, no it's, all, it's all, I said it's all unintentional. The joke was that Alan Alda likes Chinese food. Well, what can you do? Uh, you know, I, I hope Alan Alda was happy. I, I know those those restaurants kept those forever. I think probably, I'm sure the audience, if they if you haven't edited it down to a more manageable level, would be well sick of me by now. So since my my iPad is running out anyway, um, this has been a pleasure for me. I hope that you've enjoyed it. Oh, absolutely. Um, I had questions about movies. I'd, I, if you want to do something again i'd love it i have been right i'm wearing your audience can't see it but i'm wearing a criterion collection t-shirt the, the people at criterion collection i write now of um about fi- classic film comedy uh articles and essays for them i've been doing that for a while now so the story would take too long to tell now but it's it's been a great pleasure to do that they are wonderful people at that company 
And if anybody wants to read anything that I've written, it's all at their website, Criterion Collection. And then Google my, my name in Criterion and, and my designated page will come up. And you can read about, I've written about Harold Lloyd, Charlie Chaplin, Buster Keaton, uh, uh, Sullivan's Travels. I've written about uh, The In-Laws, the great, that great movie, The In-Laws. And I think people will enjoy it. I hope people would enjoy it if they're interested in comedy at all. The In-Laws is actually, well, thank you very much for doing this. Thank you, Ian. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Nice to meet you. Take care.